Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 9th of October 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks Elisa. And today we have Morrison Budget Fails the Future and End the Aged Care Ponzi Death Scheme. So firstly today, Morrison Budget Fails the Future. Now, I might say the budget really isn't the big issue afoot in this nation, but it does indicate the government's attitude to the crisis that this nation is in, and basically they're indicating the government is wiping its hands of a serious intervention into this nation's future to put the economy back on the right track. Uh, the budget deficit of $214 billion is basically just a life support mechanism to keep the existing uh, charade of an economy uh, alive for a little bit longer without taking any real long-term initiatives to put the nation back on track. Um, the so-called plan to create a million jobs simply consists of patch-up work and small potatoes uh, infrastructure, infrastructure schemes and essentially to get a million jobs to get the million jobs back that they've lost so they're, they're trying to save the existing economy mm. rather than recognizing that it's the existing economy that actually set us up for this mess exactly um, and as we'll talk about in a moment 11 billion dollars for infrastructure um, you know in the current condition we are in is the very definition of small potatoes um, and I just wanted to contrast it to the 2017 budget when uh, Morris, Scott Morrison was the treasurer, where he talked about the difference between good debt and bad debt. I remember because we were quite struck by it at the time that this, was, this sounded rather different. He actually said we should think about, quote, investments in productive capital projects in a different way to recurrent spending. And he actually stressed uh, the public role in investing in major infrastructure projects rather than just leaving it to the private sector, saying that big projects only get from being on a list to actually happening by governments doing something, taking action. Um, now, he wasn't talking about a capital works budget as uh, other economists and we've often talked about, uh, only an accounting change uh, but nevertheless, it was quite different to today's budget where he's stressing that it's the private sector that is the key, which is an echo of um, the sorts of things uh, that Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey were talking about in the early 2010s uh, with a number of speeches that they gave at Mont yeah. Pelerin Society front groups such as the Centre for Independent Studies and the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, which people may remember the age of entitlement that Hockey talked about was over and so forth. That's the, you know, it's the ideology that um, has set us up for this problem and occasionally there's glimpses, like you said, in the 2017 budget of, of acknowledging, hey, something has to change here. But given this crisis, what this budget is, is incredibly disappointing. Um, $11 billion for infrastructure is small potatoes. Now, technically, there's, that's $11 billion on, on top of previous infrastructure announcements throughout the year. Right, but nevertheless, it is small potatoes because you've got to you've got to think of it in terms of a contrast to what we should have been doing. 
Now, Bob Catter went off about it. Um, good old Bob. And Bob, you've got to appreciate about Bob Catter is um, he is one of the older people in Parliament. He, he hails from a time when we really did things very differently to, to, to this way of running the economy now. Um, and he's proud of the fact that when he, when he was in the Queensland government um, uh, under Sir Joby Occupy-Peterson, he was involved in the investment decisions then, which, which where that government borrowed $2 billion at a time when $2 billion was real money, as they say. Mm. But they invested in the railway systems in the coal fields that are now the mainstay of Australia's export industry, right? They set Australia up. So they, the, Bob says these are make-money projects as opposed to, say, a football stadium, which is an absorb-money project. And he went after the government on its, on its decisions because none of the, the budget had nothing in there for things like the Bradfield scheme, um, which has the potential to increase Australia's food production by 50%, or the, the Galilee Rail Line. Bob's ins Bob insists rightly that there should be a publicly owned multi-user railway line there instead of the, the, um, the West Australian model of where the private mining companies own the line and its exclusive rights to it, right? Um, you could have had projects like the Iron Boomerang, right, that we've talked about in this show and on our Citizens Insight video. People can have a look at it of a railway line from the uh, east of Australia top, across the top end of the west of Australia so that coal can be transported uh, west, iron ore east and steel mills both ends, right, and Australia can export uh, steel. These are the sort of investments that can make Australia productive again, right, because one, let's, let's look at this chart that we've put on the front page of the alert service this week. What you see there is an X. That X is the big fail of the Australian economy. That's what it is, a big fail. Investment, this, um, that chart's provided by um, my friend Dr. Wilson Sy from Investment Analytics. He produced that chart from ABS Statistics um, for a CEC seminar a few years ago. But it shows a collapse in the manufacturing and infrastructure part of the economy and a skyrocketing of financial services and other services, right? Now, financial services, put them aside, that's just a parasite, as, as it proves to be. Other services can be important, but it means someone's got to have made money somewhere. If you're going to have a services economy, right, someone's got to be making the money well, for other people to earn through services, making the money through production, and that's what we haven't got. That's what's collapsed, right? That's what our manufacturing is down to 6%, um, probably even less. We could this. We should be turning that around. These big infrastructure projects to turn it. We could Australia could be a food bowl. We're in the fastest growing region of the world. Those people up there love eating our food. We love eating our food. We could be supplying it to them, but it takes investment in infrastructure mm. and big investment. And with a national bank, as we advocate, you can do this separate to the budget. It will make money itself. It'll be a it'll be a self funding mechanism long term, right? Um, to to make these investments and, and put Australia on this track. And looked at it that way, here's an, an epic historical opportunity given this, the, the dire crisis we're in. This budget was small-minded, mm. gave no thought to the future, put a, rack up a lot of debt just to keep this existing system of financial services, a housing bubble on, on life support, right? And um, from that standpoint, it's a disaster, and that's what we, you know. That's why we're condemning it in the terms we are. And you can imagine um, how empowering it would be if tomorrow we woke up and they created a national bank. I mean, it gives you the capability to think big because eleven billion dollars. To put that in context, when we built the Snowy River Mountains scheme, 
in terms of the amount of GDP in today's equivalent terms, that would have been worth $300 billion. That was 15% of, of GDP at the time. That would, today that would be a $300 billion project. Would little Joshy Frydenberg have the guts in this context to announce a $300 billion project? Ben Chifley did when our, when our government debt was 140% of GDP. As bad as this debt is, it's going to peak at 44% of GDP. Right? When it was more like, when it was more like um, uh, $3 trillion debt in, to, in, in, in today's terms back then, he announced a $300 billion project. But that helped grow our economy. And that's, just, that's the, the long term, but it was productive, right? It, it was, it, the whole thing is how, do we, how are we productive? How do we make sure that we're on a productive footing mm. that pays our way, that meets our needs and, and allows us to engage with our neighbours in a, in a way that we can meet their needs and, and, and quid pro quo, earn something back for it. That's what we're not doing anymore. Now, such a productive footing would, funnily enough, also uh, correct the situation in our banking sector, which has driven our government to usher in policies dictated by the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland uh, to bail in banks, which means if banks are in a crisis, to confiscate various kinds of investments and yep. potentially deposits to rescue the balance sheet of that bank in order to keep it functioning. Now, there were certain things that came up this week in the budget regarding that, Well, I'm glad, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because, yeah, just take, for instance, what, what the fundamental risk in our banks, because we don't have a productive economy, because the centre of our economy is a housing bubble, which, which builds lots of houses but just ends up with a lot of debt, and that's, that's crushing the, the, the economy. Our banks are more exposed to that kind of model than any other banks in the world. 65% of their lending is into housing and the government's allowing them to relax their standards to do even more. So their risks are getting greater and greater and greater. And the Reserve Bank's on standby to print money and they've already been printing money, but um, there's a lot of assumptions there. This can go pear-shaped and bail-in is the idea that, okay, we can't, we can't let these banks go under, so, so you have to have ways to... Uh, we don't want to bail them out, so you're going to have to bail in their depositors, right? Well, the budget papers reveal something because um, that, that politicians are ignorant of. When most people who, who have been involved in their bail-in campaign, Elisa, contact their member of parliament, all the members of parliament say the same things. I oh, don't worry because your, your money is covered by the financial claim scheme. So this budget, the budget papers acknowledge the financial claim scheme, right? And they, there's a couple of points they make about it. That it covers now, what it covers in the banks is a trillion dollars of deposits, a trillion, right? So that's covered under the financial claim scheme. Great. Um, however, the budget also papers also reveal that backing up that guarantee is a provision, not actual money that's put aside, but a provision for it that's pre-authorised in, in a sense, of a maximum of $20 billion per bank. What that means is the, 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 the quarter of a million, sorry, the quarter of a billion dollars in deposits in the, in the two, in the, in the big banks can't possibly be covered, mm. right? And then the budget papers make the point that if the financial claim scheme is activated, that bank will have to be wound up um, so the government can get its money back to cover its financial claim scheme. What that proves is um, the financial claim scheme has nothing to do with bail-in because bail-in is all about saving a bank to stopping it from going under. The financial claim scheme only applies when they want to wind it up. And when politicians tell you that, it proves they're ignorant, right? Mm. So don't accept that. Um, pled that, that, that guarantee for them at all. This campaign on bail-in is the most important thing we're doing right now. 
The debate is on the 30th of November in the Senate over Senator Malcolm Roberts' bill, which would end bail-in and put it beyond all doubt, right? So there's, there's a bit less than seven weeks for people keep making, if, you know, make calls to your members of parliament and senators and say you must support Senator Malcolm Roberts' bill so we can get rid of bail-in once and for all in this country. Now we've got to take a break. We'll be right back to discuss the aged care crisis. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. End the aged care Ponzi death scheme. So we want to talk about the crisis in aged care, which has been ongoing for some time. And, and basically the situation we have is that the aged care sector is a, a really valuable insight into the failed model of neoliberal economics, um, which is a failed experiment. And in terms of the shifts that have taken place in aged care, one of the things you notice reading various reports is the shift to describing aged care as a market and describing our elderly as consumers or customers provided with choice within that marketplace <laughs> and so forth. It's just absolute nonsense. And so many, so many uh, evils were perpetrated in the last two or three decades, uh, Elisa, under the cover of offering so-called choice. And, and we've been an extreme example, perhaps one of the worst in the world, because you see the fact out of various figures that uh, the Saturday paper reported recently uh, that Australian aged care operators make on average four times the profit of their overseas counterparts. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that private operators have become dominant, have swallowed up smaller operators. They make 10% uh, higher profits than public health care operators. And this is because of deregulation, uh, and we wrote, we've written about this in the Australian Alert Service, which you can contact us for copies of the relevant articles and find them on our website. Um, so from the seven, 1970s through the 1980s, um, I wrote an article about how outsourcing became the key thing. So all of the critical functions of government were handed to the private sector through a series of royal commissions, commissions of audit, budget reviews, um, the public sector was basically stripped and in terms of aged care this came to a head in the 1997 Aged Care Act of John Howard which um, stripped the necessity to have at least one registered nurse on duty at all times within aged care facilities as long as as well as other additional assistant nursing ratios and so forth. Um, that was furthered by the Productivity Commission review under Julia Gillard in 2011 um, but I referenced it in the earlier segment about Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott giving speeches at various um, Montpelerin Society uh, neoliberal events. And I wanted to quote Joe Hockey because he praised the series of economic reforms in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, this is what he told a Centre for Independent Studies speech on the 8th of November 2013. Uh, by both sides of politics, he said, these lessened government control and regulation and unleashed the power of the private sector and the market. He said, wealth and prosperity are created by the private sector and basically governments must get out of the way and leave them to it. He said, Canberra must become a facilitator for private sector growth. Yeah, one of the things I like to say, uh, Elisa, is uh, governments don't create jobs, only the private sector creates jobs. And it's this kind of crazy ideology, whereas on the face of it, it's obviously not true. Right? Of course, governments create jobs and the private sector creates jobs, but don't... Yeah. The government created the Snowy Mountain Scheme, 
right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs, the Taz Hydro schemes, all those things we used to do. Of course, if, if it's necessary for the for if it's necessary to be done and the private sector is not going to do it, then the government yeah. should do it. And what they've done here with aged care though is is try and make it in a sense that they would have had all sorts of theories about it. let's make it self-funding and whatever, rather than look at it from the standpoint, hang on, these people have have um, contributed to the, yeah. the, the the society all their life, right? They we owe them something in their in their uh, in their autumn years. Oh, no, no, they can't, you can't look at it that way. It's got to be some kind of self-funding mechanism, but as an excuse for how can we make profit out of this. And it's, it's a furphy anyway to say that it's the private sector that's taken over the market because in reality it's a variation of the public-private partnership right. model uh, because most of these big private multinational even operators receive up to 70% of their revenue from government subsidies. And yet they so don't... the government has to pay it anyway. Exactly. And, and yet they don't even have to account for what they spend the money on in most cases because they're private companies and the regulator does nothing. And what we're going to talk about a bit more after this next break is how basically this sector has become too big to fail and the government dare not let any of these big operators collapse. We've really created a mess for ourselves uh, that's going to take a complete paradigm shift to get out of. So I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're talking about ending the aged care Ponzi scheme. Um, so one of the things that was created in the 1997 Howard Act on aged care was the setup of accommodation bonds later renamed as refundable accommodation deposits which many people would be familiar with where in order to get into aged care people have to sell their home and what or whatever assets they have and pony up uh, a a lump sum which is paid back upon their death or departure from the care without interest. Uh, and they, that can vary from $100,000 to $2 million. So basically these aged care operators are getting handed um, what is an, a loan without any interest. They don't have to pay interest on it. So they, what they do, and they set up this convoluted, stru convoluted structure where they basically have a second um, shell company of sorts that goes, takes that money, invests that money and claims all the profit so that the existing operator can operate at a loss and the shell company is making you know, mega bucks by investing this money and having, only having to repay it without interest at the end. Um, and, the, and it's guaranteed by the government. Exactly. So the operator is not having to pay tax and the Tax Justice Network Australia did an investigation into this a few years ago. Big operators like UK's Bupa and Opal, which is half owned by AMP Capital, um, are making a mint out of this. In fact, uh, a report that was prepared for the Aged Care Royal Commission uh, argued that current, the current model favours more sophisticated providers who have the necessary financial acumen to manage diverse portfolios and capital structures. Uh, and what this basically amounts to is a Ponzi scheme where you know, they're getting in these accommodation bonds and as long as they keep having new customers come in as the old ones die, they can continue that existing model. However, of course, the COVID crisis has made that very difficult to maintain. There's no one new coming into aged care. 
Um, but a February 2020 report betrayed the fact that the model was already collapsing and a third of the operators were in financial stress due to economic conditions, horror stories about the aged care system coming out of the aged care Royal Commission and so forth. The government had actually already had to, as you said, their guarantor, so they had already paid out $43 million of bond refunds from 2006 until the beginning of this year. And then since the COVID crisis struck, a further $1 billion has been wiped out. And that's what I mean when I say this has become too big to fail. Basically, the government and the regulator have refused to crack down on this because they would have to come in and pony up the money to cover these losses. Now, if you think that home care is an option, if you're horrified by this, some people say, well, you know, you can get home care coming into your own home. Well, that's true and you can get government packages that uh, cover that for you. However, there's 100,000 people on the waiting list to receive those packages and they are administered by private operators who take up to 70% of the income you should be receiving to care for your loved one. So that private middleman is making the profit on it. Um, but I'll show you, I'll run this clip because... Uh, on Sky News they had after the budget Ian Henschke, the National Seniors Australia Chief Advocate, talking about the money allocated in the budget and as he points out um, this is not going to do anything, it's a pittance what they've put in the budget towards this and as he said 10,000 people died last financial year on this waiting list waiting for their assistance package. If I had a bit more time to pick through the detail of the budget uh, let's start off with your reaction to it. Well I suppose the number one uh, thing that struck me was last night they said there were 23,000 more home care packages. Now we should just remind yep. people that an aged care Royal Commission was called to fix the problems in a broken system and the Prime Minister gave his assurance almost as his first act as the new Prime Minister that he was going to restore faith in the system. So when I heard the 23,000 uh, packages I thought well that's going to clean up the uh, wait list that's there at the moment because there are people waiting and dying and while dying, they're yeah. waiting. 10,000 people died last financial year waiting. So you'd think, well, the bare minimum, you would have at least 10,000, 23,000. I thought, this is great. Uh, then you have a look at it, and uh, guess what? It's over four years. So 23,000 over four years means that you've actually given uh, less, fewer than mm. 6,000 extra packages a year. So that's a long way short. A long, long way short. And, and this is not about numbers, though. When you throw these numbers around, you, you, you lose fact that this is about people's lives. And, uh, I mean, we've just... We, t we talk to people all the time who are waiting for packages, and these packages don't come. And they're at home looking after someone with a terminal illness, they're looking after someone who's got dementia, they're frail, they're in their last stages, the stress on that family. Uh, I had a, a text this morning from someone who'd been waiting for a package and that person's just simply written, is this another example of a Royal Commission where they're going to ignore the findings? And it says, is this an excuse for inaction and creating the illusion of problem solving? Uh, has the Minister no traction in his portfolio? Let's see if Labor are deeply disappointed. I mean, now this is the, this is the reaction coming in from people. That person had a, a wife who died while they were waiting for a package and they actually got the uh, recognition that they got a package one year after she was dead in the letterbox. I mean, now these are the stories that the Royal Commission heard. People who had died waiting, people who had gone into aged care. And just to add to that, um, the report that came out from the Aged Care Royal Commission last week specific to COVID identified the fact that there were no protocols, no top-down leadership of how these aged care sectors should deal with uh, COVID and no infection control officers, 
by self-assessments, all the agencies, 99.5% of them pass, but yet look at the disaster because the regulation just isn't there. So the only way to get out of this mess is to dump the neoliberal consensus that got us into this position. We kidded ourselves all these years, Elisa, that we had 28 years of uninterrupted economic growth. And I always said, if we had all this growth, why can't we, why can't we fund the really important things in society like this, right? And this is, you know, they put the Grim Reaper in charge of aged care. Absolutely, it's got to stop. So we've run out of time. Call in for more information. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. No worries. See you next week. Mm -hmm.